This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your coat on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Freddie Silva is a leading researcher of alternative history, ancient knowledge, and sacred sites. He's standing by to discuss... The Lost Art of Resurrection. Uh, First, as always, let me introduce the boys in the band here in studio on the Flying V Gibson guitar, my technical producer and fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson. And uh, are you gigging around? uh, You are gigging around town, Ian. Where are you uh, playing next? Uh, Playing right here in Toronto at the Lindsmore Tavern at Greenwood and Danforth on Friday. Friday night. What time? I say that again? Yeah, what time on Friday? Uh, we're playing around 10. Around 10. And what's, yeah. the, theat- what's the auditorium again? Sorry. Wh- where? Where is it again? You're not hearing me. Where is it again you're playing? Greenwood and Danforth. And Greenwood and Danforth. And the name of the uh, establishment? The Linsmore Tavern. The Linsmore Tavern. There you go. And the name of the band? Ruthless Ones. The Ruthless Ones. All right. And uh, here in studio on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my favorite instrument, Albert Vinzel. Uh, And then on the Hammond B3, Ryan White. Gentlemen, welcome. Now, uh, before we get to Freddie, it's time for our weekly remote viewing experiment. So I ask all of you assembled here in studio... Uh, and also those of you listening at home or in your car, to direct your attention to the cigar box. Can we get a shot of the cigar box on the YouTube stream there? It's sitting uh, on the desk to my left here in studio at 70 Jefferson Avenue. I'm giving you the coordinates now. 70 Jefferson Avenue in Liberty Village in Toronto. Utilize your remote viewing skills. Clear your mind. Don't guess. This is important. Don't just blurt out an answer. You've got to allow the shape in here, the size, the texture, the color, the form of the object to take form in your mind. And uh, if you want to play along at home, listeners can tweet me their answer 
using the hashtag TCS Remote, TCS as in The Conspiracy Show, TCS Remote. And again, you've got to tweet me the answer. Don't send it to me in an email, and if you're, if you're in the live chat on uh, YouTube, please don't send it there because I, I don't have time to look in all these different places. So just tweet me, hashtag TCS Remote. And uh, for the listener who comes closest to identifying the object, I'll send you some fabulous Conspiracy Show merchandise. Uh, And if you're a fan of The Conspiracy Show, why not show it off and help support the program by purchasing some official Conspiracy Show merchandise. You can browse our line of T-shirts and mugs and phone cases by going to the website theconspiracyshow.com, theconspiracyshow.com, and then just uh, click on the online store in the menu. Now, I just want to mention something before we get to a Freddy, something upcoming. My colleague at Coast to Coast AM, my colleagues, I should say, George Norrie and his producer, Tom Danheiser, are going to be in town uh, for the Total Health Show. And that's uh, happening April 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. April 21st, 22nd, 23rd, and uh, that's at the Metro Toronto Convention Center. Again, George and Tom, they'll be part of a special meet and greet And uh, for more information, just visit the website TotalHealthShow.com, TotalHealthShow.com. All right, it's uh, it's fitting as we uh, head into uh, uh, Easter or Pascha, uh, when Christians mark the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we should be uh, delving into the topic of resurrection tonight, Um, which reminds me, in a couple of weeks, on the 16th of April, Dr. Gary Chang will be with us for the full two hours to talk about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, But that's coming up in a few weeks. Tonight, this hour, we're going to discuss how thousands of years before the resurrection of Jesus, initiates from spiritual traditions around the world, from Central America to Mongolia, uh, Egypt, practiced a secret mystical ritual in which they metaphorically died and were reborn into a highly spiritual state. And that is, of course, uh, the, uh, the subject of Freddie Silva's latest book. Freddie is a leading researcher in alternative history, ancient knowledge, sacred sites, and the interaction between temples and consciousness. He's appeared on the Discovery Channel, BBC, Coast to Coast. And uh, again, the latest book is The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers, and the Quest for the other world. Freddie Silva, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hello, Richard. Good to be on again. It has been too long. We uh, we flew you up here to Toronto for the TV show. We were talking about crop circles. That's uh, right. That's... If I knew that you're going to have a flying V in the Rickham backer in the studio, I'd have been there earlier. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you play a, a musical instrument, Freddie? These days, it's a matter of opinion. I have a Fender Stratocaster, which is lying there looking very forlorn. As a writer, you didn't get much chance to play, and my uh, my fingers, the pressure on my fingers, you, you know how it is. You I sort do. Of start losing that pressure. Sure. I keep practicing with a little sort of ball every single day when I'm not typing something, but, oh, getting that pressure and those calluses back on your fingers, it hurts. Indeed. Well, I'm not much of a musician myself, although as a child, I did play on the linoleum. Uh <laughs> <laughs> That's bad. That's bad. Uh, now, it's Sunday. <laughs> cards on the table. Uh, I mean, I, I I am a Christian. I do believe in the in the in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned that we're going to be talking about the Shroud of Turin, 
And uh, I don't know if you've if you've delved into that at all. It's a fascinating um, uh, relic uh, artifact, probably the most studied relic in in uh, human history or artifact in human history. And I, there's some pretty compelling evidence. It's something you know there was a, something going on there. However, um, it is fascinating as you as you researched this that thousands of years before uh, Jesus, uh, you know, people weren't physically raised from the dead. It was more of a living resurrection. So tell me about this mystical practice. What does that mean exactly, a living resurrection? Well, that's what surprised me as well, because when I was researching uh, the purpose of sacred sites around the world, I kept coming across this concept uh, of the risen and the dead, and it had nothing to do uh, uh, with the actual people uh, being nailed to a cross and then getting up uh, biologically from death. Uh, people that uh, actually uh, thought that people uh, took that literally said that they're basically idiots. Uh, they're taking a spiritual idea and confusing it with an actual event. And um, when I began to read the, or shall I say reread, the uh, Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, uh, the two Gospels that were banned by the Church, and I wanted to find out, well, why were they banned? You know, um, if this religion is so important, should we be so uh, all-inclusive? Uh, and I'm speaking as well uh, as a former Christian myself. And I suddenly became very aware that the early Christians were very, very different people to the way they've been portrayed today. And there was actually a big fight going on between fundamentalists and the Gnostics at the time. And, of course, the fundamentalists won. And this was the sort of the crux of the matter, because I wanted to find out why it was that, first of all, uh, is it true that the whole story of Jesus, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection has been completely whitewashed uh, for, politically, uh, for political reasons by the church? And the early Christians said, yes, it was. And this is why we hid these books in caves in the hope that one day in the future, someone would find out the actual truth of real Christianity. And that got me very excited. Um, so I began to sort of research this concept in Egypt, in China, in Japan, in Polynesia, in South America, and found that actually the concept of resurrection was actually far older than Jesus. Um, it goes back to at least 3000 BC in China. Uh, there's a, a certain concept called the, uh, the Way, the Book of the 17 Ways, which from where this story comes from, which is found in uh, Japan in a, pre excuse me, a prehistoric text, which could be as much as 6,000 years old. And these concepts eventually migrate towards the Middle East. And by the time you get to uh, Jesus' time, you have the Mandeans, uh, one of the many sects of the period, who were practicing this living resurrection. And what it was, was the fact that you undertook a period of about three years of observation. You were uh, indoctrinated into a secret mystery school, and you were taught the true mysteries of life, how life really works, how the universe really exists, uh, not the way that we perceive it. And that these people called the few who differentiated themselves from the many, who were the people who were unaware of the bigger mysteries of life, uh, they just look at life as, you know, uh, uh, a very difficult um, life separated by birth, death, and pain in between. And yet these people consider themselves to be different, not superior, but different. And they used to talk about this thing called the living resurrection, which was a final stage of initiation after a three-year period, whereby the initiate, and this applied to men and women, um, undertook... Um, sort of a three-day event where they took a, a mild narcotic, they were heavily sedated, and they were guided by some adepts 
because this is a very dangerous uh, procedure, apparently, uh, they actually had an induced near-death experience uh, administered to the person, and they basically went comatose for three days, they left the body, and they wanted the other world uh, completely aware of what they're doing, complete control, and in complete contrast to shamanism, uh, which is very interesting because when these people came back, and I'm talking about people like Plato and Pythagoras who also did this uh, procedure, and they said it's the highest level of spiritual development anyone can hope to experience in their lifetime. So. These people, the early Christians, were talking about something that was very profound, a very profound experience, and they guarded it with their lives. Many of them took these secrets to their grave with them, and they were very upset that the whole story of Jesus had been completely twisted around to suit a religious dogma. And uh, even the Mandeans this very day, who still exist in southern Iraq, uh, are very annoyed about the way that the teachings of Jesus and John the Baptist and the people before them had been completely misunderstood and taken to be an actual event. So after your research, I mean, you you uh, you believe that Jesus was an actual historical figure, but we have misunderstood the meaning of his resurrection. It's been completely hijacked by the fundamentalist Christians at the time, and we're talking now here between the first and fourth uh, centuries A.D., and uh, the idea was that um, there was a big um, sort of... Um, schism in Europe because the Roman Empire had had collapsed and of course there was this big vacuum of power and of course religion is a wonderful way to uh, sort of fill in that vacuum and uh, there were many sects around the time of the Middle East uh, they were all practicing the same thing they all had slight differentiations about them but they all agreed that uh, this uh, living resurrection ritual was to be guarded with your life it should not be given to people who would use this for methods of control Now, the church wasn't allowed in on this, Uh, and um, John the Baptist and Jesus were privy to these mystery secrets, and Jesus himself had practiced with the Essenes and the Mandeans, and then he decided, for reasons which are unknown to me and as far as I can figure out to anyone else, decided to form his own sect. Um, And this was just shortly after John the Baptist's death. Now, I have read the work of uh, Michael Bajant and um, his uh, colleagues who basically uh, figured out that it had something to do with the bloodline and the lineage of John the Baptist. Freddie, i gotta, I got to jump in here. Forgive me. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back and pick up on that point. The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers, and the Quest for the Otherworld. Freddie Silver right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Freddie Silva is with us. Just a special uh, shout-out to everyone joining the live chat on our YouTube stream. Uh, Gord and Elkrab uh, 65, American Zero, uh, You Betcha, 
uh, YY, Anila, all of you, uh, great to have you on board as always. And just, just a reminder for our remote viewing experiment, again, use the hashtag TCS Remote, and we'll do the reveal at the bottom of the hour. Actually, very quickly, I didn't go around the, uh, the table here. Uh, Elbert, first of all, what do you think, what is in the box? Not what do you think, what do you know is in the box? Uh, some weeks you draw a total blank, other weeks you're 100% right on. But um, I sort of get a feeling of a white golf ball, or maybe an Easter egg, or a, a mirror. All right. Uh, Ryan White. I was thinking a, a small metal puzzle, maybe. A small metal puzzle. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Ian in the other room? Uh, like Albert, I saw something like a sphere, like a circle. or A, a sphere or yeah, circle. A ball or some sort. All right. I saw blue, too, but, uh, yeah. Okay, we'll do the, uh, the reveal at the bottom of the hour. And just a, a programming note, next week on the program... My mighty Aphrodite, my lovely bride, these last 17 years, will be sitting in the air chair and uh, guest hosting the program. So make sure you listen in, support her, the mighty Aphrodite. Uh, that's coming up next week. Now, she's going to maintain her anonymity. There will be no live YouTube stream. Uh, well, for the next several weeks, we'll pick it up again on April the 23rd. All right, back to Freddie Silva. Uh, you mentioned, you know, going back th- several thousand years, I think there's a, uh, an example in the book, going back 3,000 years in Mongolia, um, and this kind of gives us a nice indication of how this worked. There was someone, uh, I can't remember this individual's name, who was sort of, was he metaphorically nailed to a tree and then buried underground for three days? Oh, that was, um, it wasn't Mongolia. Uh, it was, uh, let's see, it was in Iona. It was uh, an island in Scotland. Ah. It's actually a very interesting story. Uh, this is actually the time when the Christians are starting to actually take over the uh, the north of Europe, and they're sending out uh, evangelical people to uh, you know to teach the Celts how to do things properly. Except when they show up, uh, they start talking about the story of a guy that gets nailed to a cross on the winter solstice and gets up three days later from the dead. They they just yawned and said, "Well, we've had that story for the last three thousand years because it's a guy called Issus, <laughs> so not too dissimilar to the guy that we know today." So um, this guy, Audrin, uh, he was um, the right-hand man of uh, St. Columba. He ends up on Iona, which is one of the holiest uh, islands in Scotland, and has been for a long, long, long time, way before the Christians showed up. And uh, it was a big center for the Druids. The Knights Templar were there as well. And it was also a place where they revered women. Uh, everybody worked on an equal footing. So Audrin basically uh, finds this uh, chapel, which is in a kind of a ruined state, and it was uh, run by a bunch of very interesting monks called the Chaldee, which apparently were the vestige uh, of the Essenes who were run out of Jerusalem, and they, you know, they legged it across Europe, they end up in the north of Scotland. And the Chaldee were very much into this wonderful secret ritual where they basically were hermits, and uh, one of their favorite things was to go onto this little hot spot, uh, which they basically uh, put up some stones and created the chapel around, and uh, they basically uh, would uh, conduct these raising ceremonies where they left the body for three days on the uh, winter solstice and the spring equinox, and then they came back three days later from the dead. So Audrin, being the uh, fine Christian gentleman that he was, he just says, absolute poppycock, absolute nonsense. So he decides to show that uh, these pagans were absolutely full of nonsense, and he has himself buried alive for three days. They dig him up three days later, and he gets up and he goes, and I quote, everything that we've been taught about hell is nonsense. (laughs) 
so he had himself an actual experience of the other world uh, in this particular hotspot, which is still there today, by the way. It's a lovely chapel. And uh, he basically realized that the whole concept of Christianity that he'd been taught uh, in the uh, Catholic era was completely wrong. Uh, they'd taken uh, this spiritual idea, this personal experience, which was a metaphor, uh, and uh, they basically said, no, it was actually a real event. The real guy got nailed to a cross and got up three days later. Well, the early Christians said that that's not the case at all. Uh, it's actually a metaphor describing the actual process of resurrection. But it's, it's a metaphor, but it, there's also a it seems like, from what you're describing, a, a supernatural component in that they do visit this other world. Well, what is this other world? It's another level of reality. I mean, I like to call it the uh, the room next door. Uh, if you sort of take the concept of shamanism, uh, for example, today it's uh, very popular to go and do ayahuasca retreats in the Amazon. Uh, if you talk to anybody in Central and South America, they'll say, well, it's kind of an approximation of uh, a much deeper ritual, which requires months out of your time, which none of us have today. And uh, basically, shamanism is a way to induce a certain state of visualization. And that's kind of where the living resurrection ritual actually begins, because it's, it goes much, much deeper than that, where it actually induces a near-death state, uh, very dangerous. And uh, in, in this highly controlled state, they were able to teach you after three years how to control your soul, to leave the body, uh, go walk about in complete control of what you're seeing, where you're going, who you're talking to, and come back with a full memory of this which is in contrast to shamanism, whereby the, uh, the drugs that you take induce the visions. These are not actual visions. These are actually you, part of your soul, actually goes into another frequency. The next, you can call it the fourth dimension, if you, if you prefer. And then you come back uh, totally under control um, and conscious of where you've been and come back into the body. So that, that was the difference between uh, one thing and the other. Uh, would it have anything to do with astral travel or even bilocation? Now, that's where it gets a little bit fuzzy, and I wasn't able to find any evidence to make the connection. However, uh, there were some scripts that I was sort of coming across and privy to in Tibet and Nepal uh, before they were all basically hushed up by the Chinese authorities and stolen. We don't know where they are today. But some accounts that were written in the 20s do suggest that uh, the monks that took this uh, initiation uh, concept to its nth degree. In other words, they basically stayed behind in the monasteries and did this for, for a living every day to find out how far they could take it. They did appear to suggest that, that yes, you can get to a point where you can bilocate, you can do extraordinary things to bend the rules of nature to your will. And that was one of the things that people like Pythagoras and Plato talked about. In fact, Pythagoras did this so many times, he couldn't get enough of it. Um, he did say that there's a, uh, if once you uh, uh, have access to the other world and the information there, you actually can understand the mechanics of nature and the cosmos and how it works. And this is powerful stuff because it means that when you come back into your body, you have a certain degree of control of your manifestation process, which means you can bend uh, the rules to do things to your will. And this is why they didn't want to give this information out to anybody who would, would most likely misuse it against others, you see. That's why there's a secrecy behind it. So yes, I think there is a component where if you keep um, manipulating the laws of nature, you can do extraordinary things with the physical world. Now, because this was you know, such a secret, uh, and they had these mystery schools, and not everyone um, you know, was allowed, they vetted them, 
why would Pythagoras and, and, and Plato uh, be able, to, or why were they allowed to write about this? They used to actually write it very cleverly. There was actually a rule in Greece, uh, even as far as the second century, uh, whereby if you sat, if you and I, Richard, sat in a pub and actually described what uh, we'd experienced the night before in the other world, we'd be put in jail. They were really serious about this. And Plato did it very, very well. In order not to betray the mystery secrets, he actually veiled the information through fictional characters. So when you actually read many of his books, uh, Timaeus is one of them, he actually wrote most of the process of the actual experience through a fictitious character. So um, the net effect is that uh, there were... uh, People throughout the uh, throughout Europe who took this stage, uh, this concept, of stage further, they became the troubadours. They would write stories and mysteries about the um, the lady in the tower, who basically has to be um, rescued by this knight in shining armor. All of these stories, including the story of Arthur and the Grail and the uh, the Templar knights were all to do with the way that you get these stories across to the public without revealing what's really going on. And the idea was to get people interested uh, in an evening by a fireplace or in a, in a tavern, and you'd be singing about the stories of, uh, you know, this wounded knight who goes walk about to marry his divine bride. And, you know, most people in the room would say, that's a very entertaining story. But there'd be the one person in there that would say, wait a minute, if I read between the lines, that's actually telling me there's a process here, and that's how they got you. They would say, wait a minute, this guy is interested, or this woman is interested, and then they will pull you apart, and they will join you into the mystery schools. And that's where you uh, basically are taught different truths about the world. You'd undergo a period of observation for about a year, and then if they've deemed that you were a responsible and a trustworthy person, that's when they began to reveal the bigger secrets, and that's how they did it. It was all to do with metaphors and plays and stories that get you excited enough to actually want to know more. It was very, very clever. So again, this was not just open to priests or in Egypt to pharaohs. Uh, Even women in ancient times could become an initiate in these mystery schools. Absolutely. It wasn't an elitist thing. In fact, it's a wonderful example, uh, which I found in the British Museum. It's a, it's a false door, uh, otherwise known as a car door. Uh, that's K-A, not C-A-R. Uh, and it's, called, it's a spirit door, and it's found in the chambers of most Egyptian uh, temples. Some of them are actually tombs. Uh, some of them are actually, there's no, actually no one buried there. They were actually used for the actual ritual itself, and the instructions are actually on the wall. And um, the idea was that these spirit doors were placed in the specific hot spots where the Earth's geomagnetic field flow through, allowing the, the, the spirit to flow through all the time. And if you read the inscription carefully on this spirit door, it actually describes the uh, amazement by a servant in the Pharaoh's household when he was actually chosen to join the um, secret mysteries of the Pharaoh. And he was allowed, and he describes it, says, I was allowed to go into the uh, restricted chamber and then he leaves the rest of the story blank, and he says, and at the end, I came back, and I found the way. And that gives the story away, because the way goes all the way back to China in 3000 BC, and the gentleman of the way, and the way was actually the practice of this actual, actual ritual. Uh, we know it survived for 3,000 years because the Essenes also were practicing the way, and even Jesus talks about it in the Bible, I am the way. So he was giving it away, uh, uh, you know, just by using the cunning use of words. Now, 
we, we hear a lot about uh, in, in modern times, in popular culture, about near-death experiences, and they're generally involuntary. You know, someone's involved uh, in a... I, I interviewed a gentleman that was struck by lightning, had an out-of-body experience, a near-death experience. Um, we read about these things all the time. How similar, different is the near-death experience that we read about today um, from the near-death experience that these initiates were undergoing? Well, it's good you you asked that because it's one of the most secret and most hardest things to find out that part of information because that was part of the inner uh, brotherhood. And that's something that you only learn at the last second. But I did have a chance when I was in Montreal to talk to uh, uh, Dr. Susan Baruch, who actually is a medical doctor and has had those experiences and also analyzed them. And she was at my presentation and I was at hers. And uh, we were struck by how similar the cases are. And uh, what I was able to sort of fill in the blanks was the fact that there was a narcotic that was used throughout the world. Uh, and it was in different narcotics in different parts of the world, but achieving the same thing. And I found out that it took people as much as 10 years to understand how these narcotics worked. So obviously, there was something very dangerous about their use. So someone figured out how under the right circumstances, the right dilution of a narcotic allowed you to your heart to literally reach one beat per minute to a point where you are almost dead, but not quite. And uh, I found out also that the people who administered this drug, uh, if they slipped up on any part of this uh, pre-initiation uh, ritual, they could be banned for life. Uh, so it was very serious. They understood the dangers of what you're about to do. So it seemed to me, once I started traveling through Central and South America and also the Middle East um, and also Northern Europe, that we're talking about the very same process. Um, people undertook this narcotic, uh, highly diluted, and they're able to basically do it in three times of the day where they basically allow their heart to almost stop, but not quite. Almost Again, sounds like the, the equivalent of the modern-day anesthetologist where they have to get, the, 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 they have to get the, the dosage just right or, or in big trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. And right. I think that's how they did it. All right, Freddie. Stay, uh, stay put. We'll come back and continue to talk about the lost art of resurrection, initiation, secret chambers, and the quest for the other world. And just a reminder, coming up at the after the top of the hour, open lines right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Freddie Silva stays with us as we discuss the lost art of resurrection, and we'll get back to that conversation in just a moment. Just again, a reminder, uh, after the top of the hour, open lines, your chance to ask me anything, and you can take this show just about anywhere you want. Uh, let me just um, very quickly go to the uh, Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett. S Y because I love you R E W T and we'll do our reveal here now again. Uh, Albert was uh, guessing a golf ball. Uh, Ryan had a very interesting get, um, uh, guess. I don't want I, I hate using the word guess, but you said a metallic puzzle of some sort. 
And uh, Ian, you said something uh, uh, circular, spherical, something like that. Let me just go to the Twitter feed here, and let's see. What do we have? Um, Paul Smith, a chain, necklace, paper clips, something, something sort of links of silver or gold. Uh, Rasmussen, a pencil-like object. James Grimmer, a pair of sunglasses. Uh, Sally, something roundish and fuzzy. A sheep with lots of curly wool, a, a cute toy sheep. Uh, Benjamin, cinnamon toast or a breakfast item. Amanda, I see a, curl, uh, a pearl necklace. Um, Heidi, uh, it's a rock. Uh, Ross, a compact disc but not sure of the band. <laughs> and uh, Seven Flamingos, a miniature red fire truck. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Nobody really came close this time around. Let's open it up. And there we go. It's a Frisbee. Can we see that on the YouTube stream? All right. Back in a few weeks with another edition of What's in the Box. All right. Back to our interview with uh, Freddie Silva. And uh, we were talking about um, the, um, this drug. Uh, and I guess from culture to culture, the Peruvians used something, I'm guessing they're using available natural ingredients to make this drug that would induce a near-death experience. And you said that they could, they could get the heartbeat down to one beat per minute. So all outward appearances would be that this person would be, in fact, dead. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, at this point, the person is laying comatose. And uh, one of the most, uh, one of the surviving descriptions that I found was actually in Persia. And it talks about how the, at this point, the priestesses who actually had the highest uh, level of access to the inner chamber, uh, there was, they would sort of surround the body. And for as much as seven days, and this is quite an extreme example that I found, um, for seven days they would actually sit around the, uh, the body of this person and they would actually tone or hum or sing uh, verses from a special book. And they would do this to sort of uh, create a kind of um, force field because they recognize that uh, when your soul has left the body, there's a good possibility that something else might pop in, and you don't want that happening. Uh, you, you know, they would hate for the soul to be trapped in another level of reality, come back and find that the, the host uh, body has been taken over by somebody else. So again, they also uh, said that this was a high responsibility, which is why the women actually had the highest responsibility of all. Uh, and again, one reason why the uh, emerging church left the women out of the whole equation. Um, so yes, they were very serious about the, uh, making sure that the initiate not only had years of training, but they, um, the people who were administering the drugs also had plenty of training. And as far as I know, I don't think anyone actually died, or at least there are no surviving uh, records to show. But um, there is one account that talks about how one person describes the coming back out into the uh, physical world as a sort of an uncomfortable re-entry and, and, and a difficult recovery for a few days. They'd be quite groggy. And uh, even when they were taken out of the chamber by the priestesses, they would stand on a, uh, a mound or an entrance, and the first thing that they would see would be uh, Venus rising above the horizon just before the sunrise on the equinox. What, how did these people, those that were, that were writing about it, and perhaps, it, again, like with Plato or Pythagoras, it was kind of veiled in their writing, but how did they describe these other worlds? The uh, descriptions actually started appearing around the 2nd century with Greek writers. 
who were taken on the mystery secrets of the Near East. In fact, they seem to have just borrowed from the sects that were being murdered left and right by the Catholic Church or the uh, emerging church at the time. And they recognized the importance of this because they'd read about it so much in Egypt when the uh, Ptolemaic period had taken over in Egypt around the time of uh, Cleopatra and Alexander the Great. And uh, they recognize the importance of this. So we get to learn something from them because the standards, as we're reaching the uh, the recent historical era, started getting a bit more lax. So this is where I've started to pick up a bit more of the written information. And they do describe sometimes how the world that you're traveling through is uh, very harrowing at first. Uh, And this is something they also found in uh, Peru. They talk about the soul having to traverse these two rivers. They're always uh, guided by two black dogs that can see in the dark while your soul acclimates to a new dimension. Uh, They talk about how there are many discarnate bodies and uh, unusual-looking creatures which have no bearing uh, on your uh, normal everyday life. And this is part of the training, apparently, uh, which is trying to make sure you are not induced in fear during your first few minutes when you're leaving the physical and traveling to another level of reality. You would find things and encounter things which you could not understand because there was no reference for it on Earth or in your daily life. The idea was not to get distracted by any of this, not to fall into that energy of fear. Keep straight, follow the two dogs, cross the bridge, and once you've crossed the bridge, you are in a field of reeds. And after that, they described the whole place as a kind of a paradisical landscape where color is much more accentuated, sound is more divine, um, and everything takes on this incredible color. And uh, one account actually describes um, seeing the the whole area as if the sun was still shining at midnight and everything had a a wonderful glow about it. So it's quite clear that uh, the few surviving accounts do pretty much state that these people were struggling to actually describe in ordinary language what they had experienced in this extraordinary landscape. But as far as they were concerned, this was not a dream. This was very much as real and tangible as you would have been in normal waking everyday life. All right, another time out. Come back and finish up with Freddie Silva, The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers, and the Quest of the Other World. I'm back with more of our conversation in uh, mere moments. And uh, just a reminder... Uh, Freddie's website, invisibletemple.com, invisibletemple.com. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. In a democracy... We elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Freddie Silva. uh, And a reminder again, coming up after the top of the hour, open lines. Let me give you the numbers now. And uh, these will come in handy. Uh, Out out of town, toll free, 866-740-740. 4740-866-740-4740 and in the greater Toronto area 416-360-0740 416-360-0740 uh, Freddie Silva stays with us uh, let's let's talk about the uh, the temples these secret chambers uh, where the 
this is where the initiation took place, correct? That's right, yes. Now, you uh, grew up... You, mis- sorry, I was going to say, because you, did you not grow up near Stonehenge, or at least you, were, you lived in that area? Yeah, I was very spoiled uh, when I was writing my first book on the uh, crop circle phenomenon. Uh, I actually lived right in between Avebury and Stonehenge. Uh, you don't get more spoiled than that. No, but did Stone, does Stonehenge figure in this at all? Was that used as an initiation site for this, this uh, metaphorical resurrection? No, it was used for very different reasons, uh, almost like a meeting place and a calendar. Uh, most of these sacred sites have multiple purposes about them, but uh, the, there is a place just north of that, uh, and actually even closer to where my cottage used to be, and it's, it's a long barrow. And uh, what essentially a long barrow is, it's a very long cigar-shaped enclosure uh, made of uh, alternate layers of organic and inorganic material, kind of like an artificial cave, which sits above the ground, like a, almost like a Pythagorean triangle. And it has massive stones at the entrance. And it's like you're going into the mouth of, the, of a beast that swallows you up. Uh, and that's the whole purpose. Um, if anybody remembers the story of uh, Osiris, Anybody ever wondered why it took 72 people to kill him and chop him up into little bits? Um, this story happens all around the world with different people. Uh, the, the story of the initiate, when you go into these secret chambers, is that you have to basically strip as much of your physical uh, baggage as you can to allow the soul to wander free in, into a much finer level of reality. So the metaphor of, of killing yourself or dismembering yourself was literally just telling you that uh, you, know, you have to fast. You have to leave your physical uh, worries and your baggage at the door, and then you go into the mouth of uh, this chamber, which looks like a big beast that's about to devour you. And you go inside, and that's where you do your ceremony. So the uh, West Kennet Long Barrow, uh, which is just uh, south of the Avebury Complex, is one such place. And uh, there are many uh, similar cases around the world where the designs vary according to culture, but fundamentally they are the same. And uh, one of the things that links them all together is the fact that they are very regularly called the bridal chamber. And I've always wanted to know why, what kind of bride are these people marrying? Because the initiate always, was always said to go, go into the other world and marry a divine bride, which, of course, brings up the stories of uh, the Arthurian legend and the Holy Grail. And that's exactly what it's about. Uh, you see, in the uh, ancient days, the, uh, our ancestors figured out that wisdom in all its components, uh, when you uh, go into another level of reality, the whole source of wisdom is personified by a beautiful maiden, a divine virgin. And that's the, the maiden that you marry at the end of your quest as a knight. And uh, she is the one that, uh, to whom you basically lay down your life for and you protect her secrets at all costs. So whenever you see uh, any chamber around the world that's called a bridal chamber, you can pretty much be assured that that's, that was what was used to be called the restricted chamber of access, uh, where you undertook that final out-of-body experience. And sometimes there would be, um, there would be natural caves on sacred mountains. Uh, as we began to build more uh, man-made temples, we'd actually imitate the uh, sacred mountain by creating ziggurats. So in mm-hmm. Persia, the, the little chamber on top of the ziggurats um, of some of the uh, kings uh, that were uh, buried there, um, those were actually used for ritual, not for burial. The kings actually tend to be buried under the ziggurat, as Alexander the Great once found to his dismay. Um, and also, again, in Egypt, you had the same concept where they actually created uh, artificial caves under the ground 
And uh, one of them specifically, the tomb of Tutmosis III in the Valley of the Kings, there was never anyone buried in it. But if you read the instructions on the wall, it quite clearly tells you that it's the story of an initiate who goes into the other world and is expected to come back into his living body. And they're quite unambiguous about that story. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the chamber of Tutmosis even features uh, next to the sarcophagus, which is a beautiful piece of work, when no one was ever buried in it. In fact, his body was actually found buried a mile away in the Temple of Hatshepsut. So you have to ask yourself, well, how does one guy need two places of burial for one body? It doesn't add up. And the other reason is that um, the, the giveaway is that there was a well inside of Tutmosis III's supposed burial chamber. Now, why would a dead guy need a drink of water for? Uh, and so these little clues start giving you an idea of what these bridal chambers really were used for. These, these sacred chambers, these temples, what was significant about their construction? I mean, you refer to them as uh, living organisms, but how did they aid and assist in this initiation? Was there something mystical about it? Was there something to do with their with, uh, electromagnetic field? What was it? Oh, it's a cunning technology, uh, and it's, uh, it's something that I learned when I was researching for my second book. And uh, pretty much uh, most of the sacred sites on Earth, uh, as we probably know by now, are all located on the Earth's geomagnetic hotspots. And they take advantage of that energy in order to create a certain rarefied space inside that differs from the outside space. Now, we now know with our technology that we can measure this uh, frequency and this energy. And we find that, yes, these spaces do shield outside interference and allow the space inside to draw your frequency of your brain down to a place where you become much more perceptive and also receptive to finer, more penetrating frequencies. Like and a Faraday cage. The actual process. Like a Faraday cage. Uh, that's part of the actual process, yes. It's, uh, I think it's actually drawn from that ancient technology, yes. And also, of course, uh, uh, the Great Pyramid is a great example. The choice of limestone, not just any old limestone, but a limestone that actually serves to, sh uh, on one level, shield uh, information, uh, I mean, shield of frequencies, but the second layer of limestone actually helps to conduct them into the center of the pyramid where there's red um, sandstone, sorry, a red uh, granite, one of the most uh, conductive uh, of stones on Earth, which, of course, is packed with magnetite and crystal. And, of course, that's the actual place where you actually make sure that the, uh, all the energy is attracted to that uh, chamber called the King's Chamber, where, of course, we have a sarcophagus where no one was ever buried. And that's one of the most famous bridal chambers that's sitting right in front of you. Uh, in fact, it took me years to find it look at this from the perspective of the living resurrection and go, of course, my God, the building was used on uh, from one level as an actual imitation of the underworld because you go from the, the bottom of the building, uh, which is a natural cave that comes up through what, where the Nile used to flow, and then you go along this shaft, and as you go progressively up the Grand Gallery to the King's Chamber, the stone gets more polished. Well, that's a metaphor for the initiate who starts off as a rough diamond and eventually ends up in the King's Chamber as a polished stone. So all of these things were all metaphorical, but they're also practical. There was a certain spiritual technology involved. And uh, we, know we now have the technology with which to measure this, and it's, it's absolutely true. All the temples around the world and the effort that they went to get these stones from hundreds of miles away was deliberate. It was trying to induce a certain effect which then mirrors the human body because your body is electromagnetic. You have magnetite flowing through 
uh, your brain. You also have iron in your blood. Uh, you have the crystalline structure in your bone. So the temples and the human body literally are mirrors of each other. So you see that there's a wonderful relationship that uh, actually you built these uh, man-made structures in order to mimic the human temple, but at the same time allow the human temple to forget its physicality and travel to another state of reality. Oh, these chambers aren't active all the time, are they? Or do they, don't they have to be reactivated or reawakened by some ritual? Uh, some of them are still are very much awake. Um, places that get a lot of visitors every day that pay them very scant attention or you know, flippant attention like the Great Pyramid. I mean, you go in there some days, it's, uh, it's a hellhole. Uh, you actually have to go in there and do ceremony. Uh, and uh, you know, cleanse the place out with certain procedures, which are not that difficult. Anybody can do this, and I teach these people on my tours. And um, I mean, I've been privy to one particular experience where I actually saw in complete darkness in the king's chamber, and there are three people who will back me up on this because they saw this too, and we weren't expecting this to happen. Uh, we did certain chants in there, and we actually saw people coming out of the stones and surrounding us. And I've actually taken people in there and that a similar ceremony uh, in the dark, and half of the people in the group, without me telling them anything, also saw those people coming out and stand behind them. And I thought I was uh, one of the uh, sort of one of those rare examples of people who had experienced this until I read a book from 1920s by a man called Paul Brunton. Turns out, and this book was in my library for years, I'd never got round to reading it until I was researching this. Turns out that he had had exactly the same experience as I had, and he'd spent the whole night in the king's chamber. He saw exactly the same people. He describes them in exactly the same way. And uh, now that this is in print, I've spoken to uh, several scientists who do sound energy work at the Great Pyramid and other places, and they confide in me, and I won't mention who they are because they've asked me not to, because obviously their position as scientists, they don't want to be ridiculed, but they'll confide in me and they'll say, yes, there are certain frequencies that when you hit the, frequency, the resonant frequency of the building and the chamber, stuff happens. Things start coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, and it's like magic, and it's the most wonderful experience because it's non-threatening. Uh, and they actually talk about the sense of being wrapped in a sense of complete love. And to hear a scientist say that, it's wonderful and reassuring. Well, that's something else we often hear associated with the near-death experience, being surrounded by love. We only have about 90 seconds here, but uh, um, didn't a group at Princeton study the the effects of uh, you know this being in in these types of chambers on on human consciousness oh it's one of the greatest experiments in fact pair uh, which is the acronym of the group i don't think they're any longer active um, either out of old age or lack of uh, money but their charge was to find that medium point between science and mysticism and their experiments are extraordinary i think they're still online and one of them was actually going around measuring the effect of prayer at sacred sites and not sacred sites so you can have a barometer of what works and what doesn't to prove whether the site's sacredness by itself actually has some energy to it and they actually found that yes to cut a long story short uh the sites just by themselves resonate a frequency that is equivalent to a large meditating group but when you add a certain meditation and a certain mindfulness to these sites things really take off and uh, they were able to actually measure the inclusion of human consciousness as part of this actual technology. So the temples by themselves resonate a certain frequency, but we are also part of that technology. It's a wonderful two-way mechanism. Final question, just a, a quick answer here, and that is uh, the, this other world that uh, these initiates access during this ritual, is that 
the afterlife? Is that where we return after physical death? According to the Hindus and the Egyptians and the Chinese and the uh, Sumerians and the Peruvians, absolutely. Uh, it's a big, uh, it literally is the original World Wide Web. Uh, and there is no separation between us and them. Uh, it's, it's nothing more than an illusion. Uh, this is why I describe the other world as being the, uh, the room next door uh, to my office, because it's literally a whisper away from my physical world. We just get seduced by the physical world, and we, we tend to forget there's a bigger picture out there. And this is why they built these places and why they taught us to, uh, these procedures, so we can, for one moment in our uh, dreary lives, experience what the bigger picture really is and come back and feel like a real god All right, and be Freddie. in charge of our process. Freddie, it's magic. Th- thank you so much. It was magic. Thank you for this last hour. I appreciate it. Good talking to you again. My pleasure, Richard. Freddie Silva, The Lost Art of Resurrection, InvisibleTemple.com, the website. Open lines on the other side, the website, strangeplanet.ca. Follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And a big how-do to everyone listening in on our flagship station here in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Canada, Zoomer Radio. And a hello to everyone listening down the line on our affiliate stations. Uh, the podcast, of course, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes, uh, TalkZone.com. Those of you joining us on the uh, the live chat or the uh, the the, uh, the YouTube stream, and uh, please take a moment and subscribe to the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Just hit that subscribe button or. Uh, aiming for 10,000 sometime in 2017. Uh, Ian Robertson is here, Albert Venzel and uh, Ryan White, all uh, present and accounted for. Uh, Those of you also uh, listening in using the app, either the Zoomer Radio app or the Conspiracy Show app, which are both terrific if you haven't checked them out. Amazing apps, two of the best really in any any radio app I've ever seen. Uh, And uh, those are both free downloads. So, however, and wherever you're listening, I bid you the finest and the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, we are going to embark on an hour of open lines. It's not something we do a whole lot of, and uh, I think we're going to do a little bit more of it. We're trying to, but uh, this is one night where we'll uh, open up the phone lines, and you can climb into the, uh, the co-pilot seat and steer this ship just about anywhere you want to take it. Let me give you the phone numbers. Here in Toronto, the greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And toll-free from out of town, 1-866-740-4740. Again, in Toronto, 416-360-0740. And toll-free... 1-866-740-4740. All right. I uh, always head to the mailroom when I uh, wander into the studio in the evening, and I just want to uh, acknowledge some people who were kind enough to send. I get lovely mail 
sometimes big boxes and parcels. It's like Christmas. Um, Murray from Thornhill uh, sent a little letter along with a bunch of books that he thought I'd be interested in, uh, including, let's see, The Silver Manifesto, David Morgan and Chris Marchese. Yeah, I'm a bit of a gold bug in silver. Thank you for that. And uh, also, oh, he also sent along The Cure is in the Cupboard for my good friend, Dr. Cass Ingram. I actually have that in my library, but thanks. It's, uh, it's always good to have an extra copy. Mine is getting a little uh, tattered. It's been a while since we've had Cass on the show. Uh, so thank you for that, Murray and Thornhill. And then I got this uh, e uh, express post po uh, package from, uh, let's see, it's from Sandy and James Duncan. Sandy Duncan. No relation to the... Uh, the actress, I guess. Anyway, Sandy and James, uh, I did receive your letter, and they are proposing that they want to be guests on The Conspiracy Show. And uh, Sandy, I guess, works as an intuitive medium. And uh, James, her husband, um, uh, well, he's um, got some interesting thoughts on 9-11 and um, UFOs and so forth. So I'll have a look at this when I get home, and uh, we can get you on the program. We'll see. Can't make any promises. All right. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Open lines now until the bottom or until the, uh, the top of the hour. And uh, just, uh, again, a few programming notes. Next week on the show, uh, at long last, you've heard me speak about her for uh, many, many years on this program, the mighty Aphrodite, my lovely bride will be sitting in this chair and hosting the program. And um, she's going to do, um, she kind of wanted to pick, you know, subjects that are kind of near and dear to her and in her wheelhouse, as we say. And the mighty Aphrodite is going to talk about dream analysis. We have uh, someone from the Dream Foundation in Montreal, uh, Craig Webb, I believe it is. And uh, uh, she's, she's fascinated by, you know, dreams, I think as we all are. And uh, wanting to know what is the meaning, you know, the Carl Jungian symbology perhaps behind these uh, behind these dreams. So uh, she'll discuss that with uh, Craig Webb from uh, the Dream Foundation. And uh, then uh, the mighty Aphrodite, as you know, is of Greek descent. And uh, there is this sort of cultural superstition. Some call it a superstition. Other people believe it's very real. Uh, that is... Um, Predominant in the Mediterranean uh, region, so the Greeks believe in this, the Italians believe in it, uh, people in the Middle East, in Turkey, um, in Israel, I believe. They all, they all call it by a different name, but uh, in, in Greek they call it the, um, now I'm going to forget the name of it, exmatmasmia, I've, I've totally butchered it, but uh, it's the evil eye, essentially. You may have seen people wearing those little amulets, amulets, uh, looks like a, it's blue usually, and there's like a, a little eye in the middle of it. That's to ward off the evil eye. It's a hex or a curse. Uh, so she'll delve into, um, into the evil eye as well. That's the mighty Aphrodite sitting in this chair, hosting the conspiracy show uh, next week. Uh, the following week, uh, Morgan Reynolds, who was the former chief economist at the uh, Department of Labor, in the United States under George W. Bush. That was his first term. And we'll talk about the deep state. It's a term you've heard a lot about in recent months or weeks, the deep state and the shadow government. That's Morgan Reynolds. And uh, then in the second hour, of course, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be with us, our 
uh, paranormal investigator, and she joins us the uh, the second uh, Sunday of every month. So Rosemary will be with us. Then on the 16th, the full two hours, Dr. Gary Chang, who is a professor of uh, biology, I believe, at Redeemer University here in Ontario. And uh, we'll talk about the Shroud of Turin for the full two hours. All right. I tell you, the phone lines are a little slow tonight. It's 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. That's in Toronto, the greater Toronto area. And toll free from just about anywhere, 866-740-4740. And uh, if you'd like to talk about something you've heard recently on the program, we can delve into that. If you have a suggestion for someone you'd like to hear on the program, we can go there. Uh, Of course, we can talk about political subterfuge, we can talk conspiracy, or we can talk paranormal. If you've had a uh, uh, a recent uh, UFO sighting you'd like to talk about, um, I'm all ears. While we're waiting for the phone lines, let me just uh, introduce once again my story producer, Albert Vinzel, and uh, Ryan White, our intern. And uh, Ryan helps produce my weekly radio feature called Strange Planet. Gentlemen, how are you? Can't complain today. Good. Good, good. (laughs) All right. Um, Let me ask you, as uh, Ryan, first to you, because you're new to the program, and uh, you were a former student of mine when uh, when I was teaching college. Is this what do you think of this whole arena that we've dealt that we we delve into on this show? Whether it's the conspiracy or the paranormal, do you come and be honest now? Do you come at this as a skeptic? Uh, are you a believer? Are you on the fence? What What are your thoughts? I'm uh, of the opinion, like personally, uh, when it comes to a lot of say the paranormal stuff, I've never myself seen any uh experience you've uh, never you've never had a paranormal experience no but i don't discount um the stories people tell mm-hmm. i think a lot of people will will try to claim oh there's not enough statistics or not enough evidence but if you have enough anecdotes i think they add up to some sort of statistics well somebody is yeah some people are experiencing something the question is what is it it's like the whole ufo phenomenon there's no question there are ufos ufos that's unidentified flying object Millions, tens of millions of people have seen something that they can't identify. Therefore, it's an unidentified flying object. The the Lollapalooza question is, what are these things? Who's piloting them? Uh, So um, let me ask you, Albert. By the way, have you ever had a paranormal experience? Yeah, knowing child. That's that's why I listen to the show because this is where you learn the most. That that last guest just hit the nail on the head so many times. Like revert if you listen closely and you just like suss out the details, like reverts to reincarnation. But you don't have to come back to Earth. There's like a level above human, and then if if you learn the Bible well enough, you can reincarnate like a level above human. And where he's talking about heaven's gate, bridal chamber. Yeah, you know, uh, you, know I, you know where I stand on this. I, I mean, I don't believe in in reincarnation. Uh, it um, and I've been very honest about this. It conflicts with my. My faith. I put everything through that Bible narrative. It doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't work for me. However, uh, I'm certainly willing to entertain that idea on the show. But what about a, an actual paranormal experience? Uh, yeah, uh, contactee. I, I mean, there's there's another civilization. You know, uh, you're a, a contactee, right? A level one civilization. They've seeded technology here so many times. Zero point energy is the big one. The shadow government keeps oppressing it. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You, so you were contacted by what or whom exactly? Oh, um, 
telepathically? No, no. no. <laughs> Time in between lives. Like before you're born on Earth, you sort of you're looking for a place to to get born. Um, so you remember a time be- before you were born where you were you you had contact with an extraterrestrial in the heavens, I guess. Yeah, and then and then it's the the Bible's correct. You're, you're sort of there's like those biblical characters, and like Ali Siadatan said it right. Like they have you know they need UFOs to get around, but it's it's you know Gabriel, it's the angels and things like that. And then if if you know the Bible well enough, you can go a level above human, which is you know the level one civilization, and we're at level zero, like we're stuck on oil but but then there's you know all the sort of conspiracy stuff like the david rockefeller and things like that where you know you're trapped in the matrix but you're here to learn something and it's it's, if you learn the bible well enough you you can reincarnate on a level one civilization well I, i think most people that that um you know read the bible believe in the bible would discount the idea of reincarnation however that's uh that's one way of looking at it. All right, let's go to the phones. And Ed, Ed joins us from Las Vegas tonight, this morning. Ed, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi there, Richard. Um, great. Um, nice show, as always. Try to catch you every week, that's for sure. How are you listening in, Ed? Um, I typically um, YouTube. All right, you're watching stream. the YouTube stream? Great. Yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll watch on your app, and your app is very good, very easy to use, very clear. You know, Ter- terrific. All right, thank you. Um, suggestion for a future show. Yes. Um, after your show, I think it was after your show last week, I was listening to George Knapp for a little bit on Coast to Coast. Oh, yes, a, the, the Lost City in Honduras. I was listening to that yeah, as well. That was a terrific a, interview. That was a fantastic interview. I missed a portion of it. I probably heard about half of it, but I didn't know such a thing could possibly you know, exist these days. You'd think that the whole you know, world would have been discovered by now. But it was very interesting, and I was thinking um, you know, he might be a good potential guest for you. Right. Um, I'm trying to think. Was that the, the the lost city of the monkey gods? I think that was it. Yeah, yeah in, in it. an incredibly remote area of Honduras, and apparently it's so inaccessible, mountainous and treacherous and, and um, virtually inaccessible. Right. Uh, and there are places – yeah, it's hard to believe that in, in 2017 there are still places on this planet where no human has ever set foot. And um, – but you know when you when you look at how thick the jungle is and mountainous and so forth, uh, it stands to reason. Yeah, there are there are places that are that are untouched here in Canada. I'm sure there are thousands of square miles no one has ever been, uh, or you know maybe not since um, who knows. Uh, you know the um, the first Aboriginals you know crossed the land bridge in the Bering Strait and set foot there. Yeah. It's an interesting concept, and uh, one thing I found interesting about it. Was that um, I think nobody's you know it's been it's been lost for like 500 years or 700 years whatever it was, but he said I think everybody left at the same time or roughly at the same time, which I found uh, you know kind of interesting. There's some event that caused them to to basically evacuate that that area or leave that area. All right, Ed, I'm going to uh, search that out and let's see if we can bring on the uh, awesome. the person that wrote that article for um, I think he writes for New Yorker magazine. Thanks for the suggestion, Ed. Thanks for checking in from Las Vegas. Thank you. All right. We'll come back. More of your calls. Open lines, 416-360-0740-866-740-4740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Open lines. And uh, here's an interesting article I was reading earlier this week about uh, Alan Bean, uh, who is only one of 12 people to have ever taken one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Uh, he was the, uh, the fourth man to walk on the uh, lunar surface. And um, uh, he says that he knows, or he explains why he knows, aliens have not visited Earth. Albert, I want you to pay close attention to this. Uh, Alan Bean is 85, and uh, he was the lunar module pilot, one of two crew members on, on board Apollo 12, which walked, uh, who walked on the moon days after it launched on November the 14th, 1969. Apollo 12, Alan Bean. And... Um, this is a guy that logged 1,671 hours and 45 minutes in space. 10 hours, 26 minutes of that were spent on the moon in Earth's orbit. And he says, I do not believe anyone from outer space has ever visited the Earth. He told News.com in Australia from his home in Houston, Texas. One of the reasons I don't believe they've been here is that civilizations that are more advanced are more altruistic and friendly, like Earth, which is better than it used to be. So they would have landed and said, we come in peace and we know from our studies you can have cancer that kills people. We solved that problem 50 years ago. Here's the gadget we put on a person's chest that will cure it. We will show you how to make it. Uh, Just like someday, say 1,000 years from now, when we go to another star and see a planet, that's what we would do because we'll know how to cure cancer, cure birth defects. So we would teach them. Uh, Mr. Bean doesn't doubt for a second We are not alone. He says there's so many billions of stars, and these stars have planets around them, so there must be statistically many planets around many stars that have formed life, he said. Maybe some of them are like like our life was 100,000 years ago, and some of them are like we are now, and there are probably some out there that are 10,000 years in the future from where we are now. So uh, I guess Mr. B, I don't think that's a very (laughs) convincing argument. His argument is that if aliens had been here before, we'd already have a cure for cancer because uh, these these civilizations, they'll come here, they're more peaceful, they're more altruistic. I don't necessarily think that follows. Just because you, you master space travel, because you become, Albert, as you said, a level one civilization, in other words, you've, you've um, harnessed the power of the sun, uh, and this would lead to interstellar travel, that doesn't mean you're, you're necessarily more altruistic. I think you could simply, I, I think you could come here and be very, you know, ag- aggressive, like the reptilians supposedly are. We're the aggressive ones. Dangerous for them to do so. Like the war broke out in heaven and now it's being played out on earth. The, the one third that were kicked out of heaven, they were put on earth. We're, we're the ones under quarantine. So it'd be dangerous for them to come here and give us the cure for cancer and things like that. Like, so they, they have it, but if if they came here, we would like, you know, the shadow government would attack them. All right. Let's uh, welcome our good uh, friend, our media scientist friend, Nelson Thal, to the program. Hey, Nelson. Are you there, Nelson? 
Oh, I think he's dropped off. I'm sure he'll check in again. Uh, let's say hi to Karen in Ohio. Karen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hello, Richard. It's really exciting to be able to listen to you. Oh, how are you check? How are you listening? Um, gosh. Well, I'm listening on Zoomer. I think through TuneIn, but mostly because of a friend, Mary, Mary Whitworth, who arranged all this for us this weekend, and a Canadian compadre of yours, uh, Benjamin Hemiston, he turned us on to you. It's very exciting to oh, hear this tonight. Wonderful. So you're... Actually, we've been listening every Sunday. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And whereabouts in Ohio are you from? Uh, Fairborn, Ohio. Fairborn. Okay. I don't know Fairborn. Uh, it's where Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is. Oh, is that right? Yep. Wow. Then I should know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, um... So you're 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 pulling us in on on Zoomer Radio, or is that how you're listening on Zoomer Radio? I think I am. Yeah. Ah, okay. AM seven forty on the dial. Well, I I, I I I had trouble getting through, but I mean finding it, you know, and right. being able to go on Facebook. But yeah, I I came through Zoomer. Excellent. Well, there you go. Welcome to the program. What's on your mind, Karen? Well, I guess a couple of things. I'm kind of sad not to be able to speak to your former guest, so the guy who was just on. Oh, earlier. Freddie Silva. Yeah. All right. Well, imagine that he were here. What would you ask him? Well, uh, uh, the first, I guess my my first one was when he mentioned that Jesus separated from whatever his religion was and went off to start his own sect, which... You know, in this day and age, is like Odo sex cults and all that. You know, but look what happened there. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not on the same page with Freddie on that. Um, okay. The thing about the the um, about Christianity is they they re- they recognized that the the narrative of of Jesus um, dying on the cross, being resurrected after three days, was incredibly derivative. Uh, they didn't hide from that fact. It wasn't like, you know, this is something unique. The idea was, though, that I believe that this narrative was ingrained in, 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 our, in, in, in the consciousness at that time because it had been talked about and, and perhaps, you know, these other initiations were, did take place, these One metaphorical resurrections. But I believe that the that Jesus resurrection was a physical resurrection and I and uh I believe the shroud of Turin is is uh very compelling evidence that there was a resurrection event uh, uh which involved radiation. Well, How- he he also spoke of Jesus being the way and in um Taoist religion. Mm. That was the way and I I mean to me they seem to fit together. I mean the mysteries Right, right. We call them something different now, but they used to be called the mystery. Well, but he also said that he was the son of God, and if he wasn't, then he was either a madman or a liar. Did so, he actually say that? He did. It's in the Bible. Yes, okay. he did. Yes, he did. Well, I'm not a Bible yeah. aficionado, so I don't really know. I mean, I know what I've heard, and I right. I know what little bit I've read, but... Well, Karen, it's so great that you uh, finally got through to us, and thank you, and welcome to the program, and I hope you'll enjoy us every Sunday. I am intending to. Wonderful. (laughs)
All right. You Thank have you. A, a great evening and a good morning and a good rest of the week. Thank you so much. I think Nelson has checked in again. Nelson, how are you? Uh, I, I'm just great. Thanks, Richard. Um, Richard, two great things you brought out. Last week, Al Warren mentioned that um, Mrs. Harriman, who we've been trying to find out about, who's Colonel um, Williams's, Russell Williams's wife. Oh, let me just let me just jump in. Hang on, Nelson. Let me just remind people what you're talking about. So last week on the program, we had Al Warren, who writes uh, True Crime, uh, and we were talking about serial killer Colonel Russell Williams, who, of course, flew... Uh, sort of the equivalent of uh, Air Force One here in Canada. He flew the Prime Minister. He flew the, the Governor General. He flew the Queen of England, he, Prince Philip, uh, and others. And then, of course, um, by day and then by night, he was this horrible monster that was torturing and, and raping and murdering uh, young women and photographing and videotaping it. I mean, it's it's right up there with, uh, the, you know, Bernardo, this um, monster. Um, and yes, his wife's name was, her last name was Harriman. And she was treated with kid gloves and very protected by the police, unlike ever anyone else before. And he mentioned that she was connected to BP, British Petroleum. So everything then falls into place. So you're, you're uh, because you had sort of alerted this uh, me to this, you had called before the show and you said, ask Al whether Russell Williams' wife, um, last name again, her maiden name, Harriman, was any relation to the Harriman, um, the Harriman family in the United States. They were kind of Boston blue bloods. Averill Harriman was, I believe, at one time governor of New York. He was also the ambassador to Moscow uh, during the Second World War. Very powerful family. Some say the Harrimans were the ones that actually sort of put their uh, – took uh, William Jefferson Clinton under their wing. Um, right. Mrs. Harriman was Winston Churchill's uh, um Mistress, and before that was Winston Churchill's daughter-in-law, married to Randolph. You, and you also told me something very interesting about Averill Harriman while he was the ambassador to, to Moscow and back in the early 1940s. Tell me about that again. Yes, it's been reported. It was reported mostly uh, by a number of reporters that in 1941, when Stalin had his breakdown, that uh, the British establishment, the British crown, put Harriman in charge of Russia, running Russia. And of course, this will uh, dovetail with those who've read the book about Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, etc., etc. Okay, so uh, you're saying that um, it's it's still possible that um, he was his Harriman... Is, now we start to understand how a guy who was a serial murderer is also flying around the Queen and, and uh, the Prime Minister of Canada. It all starts to now come into focus. Well, uh, Al Warren raised a couple of interesting points. First of all, she, um, she, didn't, be, she didn't seem surprised or shocked um when uh when her husband was uh, arrested and convicted and um she had access to his she computer she, she had access everything. to the computer she must have his handler. she seemed to know everything so yep. interesting all right nelson before i go one yes. other thing next week you're having um morgan reynolds on and uh, you were talking tonight about bean and the moon and uh everyone should just read morgan reynolds no more games.net uh, he's got a great article there star blind on the moon tales from apollo days and of course he's one of the major scientists who points out that they did not and could not scientifically get to the moon so next week everyone should turn into no, your program uh, and not, next week, not next week not next week morgan reynolds april the 9th 
Oh, April, not two weeks. In two weeks, right? That's right. That'll be a great show. I can't wait to hear Morgan. I had him on, uh, did an interview with him and had him on my show years ago, and I'm looking forward to hear him update about what's happening. All right, yes, we're going to delve into the deep state and the shadow government. And uh, again, Morgan was uh, the former chief economist at the Department of Labor under George W. Bush uh, back in the uh, back in 2004. So it was the first term. Yeah, he's and an interesting Professor guy. Professor Emeritus at Texas A&M University. He's a top-flight scientist, so it'll be great to hear what he's got to say. All right, Nelson, my friend. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thanks for doing such a great, uh, most noble job. My pre- I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, all right, do we have time, Ian, for one more here before the break? I think so. Let's uh, say hi to John in Ohio. John, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, John. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good. Um, yeah, I was wondering. Um, I, I'm listening to you on uh, my little Radio Shack radio here. I get you in pretty good, usually week to week, but sometimes it fades out. And you're pulling us in on 740, AM 740. I try to listen faithfully every week. Great. Um, I was A few weeks ago, you had a, a gentleman on um, that was claimed he was being electronically targeted, and I'm not sure what his name was. But Michael, what, was Michael Bell. I ask you what happened. Michael what Bell. Happened? Michael Bell. That was a couple what, months ago, what wasn't happened? it? happened? He got cut off. Um, no. Remember what happened? He got, he got cut off. He was talking, and he was saying he was being drugged, and um, he couldn't remember where he was, and then he said he looked out the window, and he recognized, like, one part of the window was like, it looked like Los Angeles. And then the next thing I heard, the, uh, your station went to playing music, and he never came back on. Uh well, the guest you're talking about was Michael Bell, and and but that doesn't sound at all familiar. We had a pretty lucid, normal conversation for two hours. Now it's possible that uh, I don't know something went, you know, the signal. Um, you, you lost the signal down there in Ohio, but no, we did the the full two hours, and and I think the the YouTube stream is still up there. The the uh, the podcast on YouTube, or you can go to. Okay, um, I, I was I couldn't figure out why I didn't hear the rest of the show. Um, I thought the government or something stepped in and cut you. Well, you never know about that. You never know about that. <laughs> I've found well, maybe it, here. I don't know. I mean, it was just like I said. That's all I heard was um, he said that he was looking. He didn't know where he was, and he he looked out the window and he said he thought he recognized the tree or the trees okay, or okay. something. Okay. Now, yeah, that wasn't. He wasn't talking about while he was on the show that this was happening to him. He was talking about something that happened to him in the past, uh, where he would actually he was actually abducted, taken someplace, and drugged. I remember that yes, part now. Yes. Yeah, but in terms of the, and then he said he, he, but he didn't know what, who was doing. And then he said he looked out the window, or just, uh, it looked like a warehouse or something. Mm-hmm. And he said that he he recognized the trees, and it was like around Los Angeles. He recognized right. the street or the trees. Okay, or now I remember. Yes, and, yes, yes. Okay, and then all of a sudden, uh, the next thing I know, I hear I don't know some bumper music, and I'm, I said, wait a minute, the show can't be over. And I'm thinking, oh, it's his bumper music. And then it went from one song to another song, and it never came back on. Well, that, that's uh, that's a show that follows this show on Zuma Radio. It's the All Night Jukebox. So that was the end of the show. So what you want to do, uh, yeah, I know, John? Yeah, it was only like it was only like after midnight, though. All right. So go, listen, go back to um, um, go to talkzone.com. Go back a few months or type in uh, find my show on Talkzone. Uh, they, they carry okay. all of the um, the past episodes, and um, there's a past show button. Click on that. And just scroll down until you see find that show on on uh, electronic harassment or electronic stalking or whatever. Or you can type in Michael Bell into the search engine, and um, okay. you, you should find the show and listen to it. 
I, it should be all there, as far as I know. Electronic targeting. It is. It's it's uh, it's scary when when you. I mean, I get I get uh, every week. I would say I get an email or um, a letter from someone who believes that they are being targeted. John, got to run. Thank you. Good to hear from you okay. again in Ohio. Thank you, All right, more open lines when we come back. 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 866-740-4740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Open lines until the, uh, well, until we dim the lights and say goodnight. And I know Doug in uh, the Hoosier State, Indiana, is low on minutes, so let's work him in here. Hey, Doug, you're on board. Come on in. Okay, Richard. Uh, I was sitting here calculating here by using the 200-inch Mount Palomar Observatory and figuring that if you use maximum magnification on it, you could look down on the moon's surface as, as if you was in a 21-mile orbit above the surface of the moon and i was figuring if people that don't believe that uh, the united states landed on the moon why not use the space telescope which would have considerably more magnification than what the palomar mountain does and you should easily be able to pick out the lunar rover from uh, using that space telescope i agree i agree uh, and and uh, i might i might be mistaken but i think amateur astronomers have done that and and have have seen the uh the the loner or the uh, the lunar rover etc of course then the uh, the um those who believe that we haven't been to the moon would say well they could have sent that up there in an unmanned mission i believe uh, and i'm on the record as believing we have been to the moon um I'm, i find it a fascinating subject and i love to hear the arguments on both sides Yes, they can uh, look several billion years into uh, the beginning of uh, the cosmos and everything. I think they should be able to pick that off the surface of the moon. Absolutely. Absolutely they should. Yeah. You know, the big the big uh, obstacle, they say, are these Van Allen belts. But I have I've looked into this and I've, and I've read about it. And the Van Allen belts are not sort of consistent. Uh, they're not uniform around the planet. There are there are areas of the Van Allen belts that are uh, very thin. They tend to be thicker around the poles and very thin around our equator uh, out in space. So, you know, they calculated this. There was a, they they they. Um, the, uh, the astronauts flew through the thinner portion of the Van Allen belts, and the amount of time that they spent in there, um, you know, it was reduced so that, um, you know, they weren't exposed to the, the, uh, the radiation, uh, the type of radiation that would have been, you know, deadly. So I don't see the Van Allen belts as being an obstacle to, uh, you know, traveling out into space. Well, the thing is, the light year is so far, so massive amount of distance that it's just inconceivable to think that we could ever be able to travel it. But with telescopes and everything, it's possible. Maybe you can see civilizations that cease to exist, you know, and that's about as far as mankind will be in the way of being able to explore other places in the universe. Yeah. Uh, 
not being able to attain light speed is certainly uh, going to be a huge obstacle in terms of interstellar flight, yes, and getting to any of these, even these Earth-like planets that are light years away. That is, uh, that's going to be a huge obstacle, overcoming um, light speed. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Even if you could achieve a light speed, it would still, maybe the nearest civilization might be 100 light years. You're still talking 100-year travel. That's right. Well, um, not in our lifetime, Doug, but uh, who knows? Thank you so much for checking in from Indiana. Good Thank to hear you, from sir. you. All right. Uh, let's see. Sean is in Toronto. Hello, Sean. Good morning good, and uh, welcome. Good morning, Richard. Hi there. I'd like to congratulate you on an excellent program that you have. Thank you. Thank uh, you. I listen to it frequently. Uh, it, I find that it's uh, very creative and gets people thinking and talking. All right. Uh, good, uh, good one to of, know. One of the things I was uh, wanting to inquire with you is, some of your guests have already talked about it, is uh, the space travel, whether it's real or not real that we've had, and whether or not Donald Trump's promise to uh, put in uh, large amounts of money for actual manned space programs. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a great idea. I, I think that uh, Trump, or at least those people who are advising him, understand sort of the ancillary benefits uh, you know, it's not just throwing money down a hole, and uh, it's an ex- it's obviously it's an incredibly expensive endeavor, uh, putting a man on the moon or manned flights to Mars, uh, but the the ancillary benefits are tremendous. Um, I agree. So yeah, I I think it's 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 an absolute must. I think they have to do it, and they will. I hope. So your your decision is that it will go forward. Well. Uh, Will it go forward? Will, will they? They'll spend the money. Will they? They'll spend the money. Whether you know, I'm not sure about the timing of uh, you know when we'll see a manned mission to Mars. Um, I certainly think before 2030. Yeah, because you see all these other companies that are going private and offering these trips and looking for uh, candidate astronauts. Uh, I just found it interesting that Trump is getting in on the bandwagon. Right. Well, listen, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, of private enterprise uh, and you know free markets and so forth. But when it comes to something like a space program, uh, you can't just be doing like these little tourist junkets. I mean, this requires the state to get behind it, and you're going to have to have you know cooperation between. Uh, nations, which, you know, it reminds me, which is something very, very interesting about the Cold War. Uh, you had these tensions, you know, going on in the, in the a tremendous tension in the Cold War. And, you know, in, in uh, the early 60s, people of that age remember, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, duck and roll and all of these things, uh, you know, uh, in, in the event of a nuclear um, war and so forth. The tensions were palpable. At exactly. the same time, however, uh, while that was going on, there was this incredible cooperation between the Soviets and the Americans in terms of space travel and so forth. It, it, it. Uh, I don't know. There's something there that just doesn't seem right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. I know that they were thrown off by the Russians getting into space first, but that's just pride. Yes, but the idea that they we could be at on, on the brink of war on one level, but at another level they're cooperating with each other. Exactly. It's very strange. All right, Sean, thanks for checking in. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, uh, David is in Toronto. Good evening, David. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, We met at Judy Wood, and uh, you went to your car and got me a poster, which I got signed, and and you owe me a beer. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that, yes. (laughs) 
Anyway, um, I just wanted to say something about reincarnation. All right. Um, um, The Bible, apparently, and I think I got this from W.Y. Evans-Wentz, who who, uh, was at Oxford in the, whatever they call the chair of religion. Um, He, um, as I recall, said that the Bible was... uh, was edited or changed uh, significantly, and that there was something called the Second Council of Carthage. I could be wrong on yes. the details. Yes, yes. Pope Vigilus, and and something like this, this wondrous doctrine of the pre-existence of the soul and its survival upon bodily death is anathema, roughly speaking. And so that declaration about one quarter of the way through the history of the Christian Church, which was governed by the popes in those days, um, changed the view of um, of uh, Christianity, I think, around reincarnation considerably. I've heard that, yes. Now, um, what I found, like I had an experience of, of a previous life. Let me, get and, you, let me get you to hold on, David. We're just heading into a, a break. Can you okay. do that for me? We'll get your story when we come back. David sure. will tell us about his past life experience. If you've got a line, hold on to it. All right. If you don't, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 866-740-4740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free. But first... It will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, and uh, David was holding on during the break. And David, uh, you were talking about reincarnation being uh, expunged from uh, the Bible. Uh, and um, I can talk about that a little bit, but you, first, let me let me let, let let's have your uh, your experience with the past life. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure about exactly how the books of the Bible. I know that there's a, there's a lot of uh, books that are, aren't in the Bible, like the Gospel according to Thomas, which is interesting, purporting to be a stenographic record of what Christ actually said, discovered in 1945. There's a lot of unusual, interesting things uh, that weren't included in the in the current one. Anyway. <clears throat> um, and well, there's a reason way, they I weren't included. You get to take yeah. over from George Norrie someday and, and, and be the number one host on, on uh, Coast to Coast. Well, that is back. very kind of you to say, and I'm very happy to occasionally sit in on a, on a Saturday, a Sunday, or mm. once in a while when George takes a much-deserved night off, I'll do a Friday night. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was going to say then, so <clears throat> I'd uh, listened to Wayne Dyer for many years. Oh, yes. Listen, and I remember one time he said something which sort of stuck in my mind, which is if you upgrade faith to knowing miracles happen hmm. now whatever that might mean the difference between faith and knowing what what it's meant to me was that in the inner world of the subjective self for me i, I can have capital k knowledge without proof whereas in the outer world of science they have i guess you'd call it capital k proof without any final knowing or knowledge hmm. so it's a sort of an intuitive sense of certainty that appears to be a precursor to the miracle of discovery in the inner world, I, I guess. Anyway, back in the early, early 70s, or 74, 75, I was reading a paperback book called The Spear of Destiny by Trevor Ravenscroft, and whatever the truth might be about the substance of that book, 
when I read it at some level, I absolutely knew for the first time that reincarnation, and this is for me, reincarnation is how it is. Hmm. And as soon as I knew that, ten minutes later, I was walking down Princess Street in Kingston, Ontario, and I had a flashback, and I was a female. I was a ballerina. I was on a stage. I was getting a standing ovation for my performance, and I knew that I'd achieved my purpose in life, which was to get appreciative attention. And somehow that was... That was uh, it, it led me on to another idea, too, that, so, that when we have flashbacks to perhaps to previous lives, which I know that to be, but I don't expect anybody else to accept that because this is inner knowing, um, we, we may actually, the more purposes we achieve, our own subjective uh, exceptional potential, which only we have to achieve in our own life, um, the more of those we achieve, I, it occurred to me that it might well be that it would be easier to look back in a future life and see this one. If I manage to achieve purposes in this life, I think I've already done one. But but uh, I think it's it's um, important to achieve those purposes, possibly just to be able to remember from life to life what previous lives were. I mean, it's just that's my own personal uh, take on it, anyway. Right. No, I appreciate you uh, sharing that. Yeah. Um, and I, you, you'd mentioned um, reincarnation being expunged from the Bible, uh, and the decision was made during one of the ecumenical councils. And I think we, we were we said Carthage, but it was Nicaea. That was the there was seven of them. That was the first of uh, first of them. Uh huh. And that's going back around um, early fourth century, three twenty five. Mm-hmm. And um, I not to my I'd have to go back and look, but to my knowledge, that that subject never even came up during that council. Now the the problem with arguing that reincarnation was taken out of the Bible is we have manuscripts of the uh, of the Bible that go back to that predate the Council of Nicaea. It goes back to, you know, like 300, 290 AD. And they, they remain pretty well exactly the same. And there's there's nothing in, in those early transcripts of the Bible that mention reincarnation. So yeah. at what point then was it taken out? That's the well, question. I, I, I didn't mean that. I misspoke. I didn't mean it was taken out. Um, I meant that it was, uh, I, I understood from what Evans once said, that Vigilus, the Pope Vigilus had spoken against it as an anathema. It was unacceptable for right. Christians to believe, so okay. that was more of a papal edict. Oh, I see what you're but, saying. Okay. What, um, I think that the place that I was um, headed actually around that was, have you run across um, a book called The Gospel According to Thomas, which was part of the Nag Hammadi finds in 1945. Right. These were, um, yes, these were um, these were found in the Sinai, right? I think so. Yeah, Nag Sinai Hamadi Desert. was like, yeah. the location, well, I guess. Yeah, there were, there were a bunch of them. There was, there's, a, uh, there's even The Gospel According to Judas. Um, there's Timothy, there's Judas. There's one, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus, apparently, that are part of this uh, collection. Um, now, just because I guess that they were found in a in a you know a clay jar buried in the desert, um, and they, you know, maybe they can even be uh, dated back to that particular time. You know, doesn't mean that they're credible or that they they shouldn't have been rejected. There's a reason I'm guessing that they were, you know, it was decided, perhaps at one of these ecumenical councils, which books get in and which don't. But to me, the remarkable thing about the Bible as it exists, if you look, 66 books written by something like 44 different 
authors over 2,000 years, and yet uh, they go together, and yet there's this incredible cohesiveness. Um, you know, it's remarkable how they decided which ones would go and uh, which ones would stay. What, what I found interesting about the Gospel according to Thomas, which I think it starts out, these are the living words that Jesus spoke and Didymus Judas, Judas Thomas wrote. Mm-hmm. And if you look in the Gospel according to John, you'll see that the doubting Thomas's name, I believe, was Didymus Thomas, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. That's, yes. And, and uh, so there, if that was the same person, and this was authentic, it, it purports to be a stenographic record, record of what Christ actually said, which makes it interesting to look at, and I think that you'll find evidence that Christ spoke positively of reincarnation, if one were to accept that as possibly right. real. Of course, it depends on, you know, who decides what goes in and what's acceptable and, you know, what makes sense, and uh, cohesiveness perhaps would have been a factor, but, but there could have been a lot of other factors, because once the Church started to sell indulgences to get people out of purgatory, there was a huge financial incentive for them not to have reincarnation as real anymore, because you either get to heaven or hell, and it depends on. Yeah, but you the, listen, the but the the uh, the Bible had been established long, long centuries and centuries before the indulgences, uh, and um, I mean, yeah, for those of us who believe in in the Bible as it is, mm-hmm. they would they would say that they believe that the bishops that, count, that gathered at these ecumenical councils were divinely inspired. I suppose so. Yeah. Listen, great to hear from you. Yeah, okay, nice meeting you, or uh, talking to you. Maybe we'll get a chance to get together sometime. Would love to. Thank you, David. Thanks, Brian. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to another Dave in Arizona. Dave, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, it's still evening here. <laughs> oh, that's right, you're in mountain time. It's only uh, not quite yeah. 11. All yeah, right. actually, I'm on complete West Coast time. Arizona is the only state that does not change time. Like, oh, is that right? We're like an idiot. Oh, okay. <laughs> how, are you, how are you listening in, uh, Dave, tonight? Uh, I'm on YouTube. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, a couple of friends actually posted on uh, Facebook a bit ago, and I came here, and they're in the chat, and they want everybody in the chat there on YouTube. Hello, Amanda, Ben, and everybody. That's right. But, uh, yeah, see, I'm project coordinator for the CubeSat for UFO Disclosure. We're actually launching the first-ever UFO hunting satellite. That's coming in later this year. We have already paid for the satellite launch. Wow, a UFO uh, hunting satellite. How did you get? How did you raise funds for this? We uh, did crowdfunding. Yeah, we used uh, Indiegogo and Kickstarter, and we raised uh, a little over thirty thousand. And wow. then we have somebody that's come on board that's uh, promising the rest of the money. But we've already paid for the launch. It's paid for. It's going to happen. And uh, uh, we are set. We're actually going to do this. We're going to have our own satellite camera platform with a magnetometer and a simulation counter in orbit. So we can finally do this ourselves. That you is know, very no more cool. NASA cut the feed or anything like that. That's very cool. Yes, <laughs> very cool. And who's launching it? Uh, actually, a company out of the uh, Mojave Desert. It's Interorbital Systems. They're a new rocket company. They're launching Cube satellites. And uh, after this, now we have something in the works. We ain't sure yet, but we're still working on it. But we may try to send three of these Cube sets to the moon to image the moon ourselves too. That would be uh, next year, but uh, we have that in plan, and uh, may have somebody on board that may want to do it. So, <laughs> so perhaps uh, if you're able to to um, photograph the moon, you can get a um, you can get some images of the uh, the lunar orbiter or the uh, the lunar oh, rover up there. Everything, yeah, that's what the whole goal is to be able to see 
and prep, they see a license plate on that thing. That's the whole goal. If we do do the moonshot, which it looks like we are, and uh, we want to image the entire moon. It'll be quite a few months of three CubeSats orbiting in different orbits and uh, image the whole thing and be able to see the landing site to prove that it happened or if there's bases or whatever people have come up with. You know, we're just, uh, we're going to do it. It's time Send that over to the dark side of the moon. Itself. I want to see what's on the dark yeah. side of the moon, Dave. Yeah, I know. Everybody does. All right. Dave, great <laughs> to hear from you. I hope you'll call again. Yeah, sure, sure. Come on sometime. I've been a guest on like a dozen or so shows, so... Yeah, I'll tell you what. Yeah. I'm gonna put uh, put you on hold and speak to Ian. He'll get your your particulars, your contact information, and uh, Albert will be in touch and we'll get you on the show. Okay, great, great. Thank you, Dave. All right, let me say hi to Mark in uh, Southern uh, Maryland very quickly because he's been holding a while and wants to say hello. Hi, Mark. Hey, good morning. Richard. Yeah, I probably don't have a quick story, but I do. Oh, you're cutting up. Uh, you're cutting out there, Mark. Can you hear me? Oh dear, that's a shame. He was holding on. Listen, Mark, if you can hear me, uh, in a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, I think we're going to do some open lines again. So um, call back then, and we'll get to you. My apologies. There goes Mark. All right, we are done. Uh, That was fun, and we're going to do it more often, open lines. That is, thanks for everyone uh, for calling in. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, Ryan White, all of you for listening. Back next week, well, it'll be the mighty Aphrodite sitting in this chair. Please. It's like, you know, when the regular teacher goes away and the substitute teacher, not that I'm a teacher, but the substitute teacher comes in and they warn the class, I want you to behave. I know you will. The Mighty Aphrodite, next week on The Conspiracy Show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.